You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When it was time to bring our first child home from the hospital, we put Tiana in the car seat in the back of the car, and V got in the passenger seat. And I got into the driver's seat, and I looked at Tiana, and she was so fragile, and she was so tiny that it seemed that she, she wasn't even big enough for the little car seat. I drove home on the highway at about 30 miles an hour <laughs> with my hazard lights on. That first day, when your child is in the car with you, is a scary day. But when that little girl turned 14 years old and started talking about getting a driver's license, I realized that the next really scary day with your child in the car is when you're handing over the keys to them. When they move into the driver's seat, that is a scary moment. It's a big moment. I got a witness out here calling on the Lord for some help. It's a big moment when you hand the keys to somebody else. Because up until that point, you've been in control. You choose the destination. You choose the route. You choose the speed. You're in the driver's seat. But when you change seats with someone, when you hand over the keys to someone else, you have to trust them to be in control. Whoever's in the driver's seat is the person in control. And any observer of American Christianity can see that many people like having Jesus in the car. They just don't want him driving. Many people like to have Jesus in the passenger seat because something might come up in which they can use his services. It's nice to have Jesus in the car when your relationship gets a flat tire. Because you can just ask Jesus to patch it up so you can get back on your merry way. It's nice to have Jesus in the car when you get into a financial collision. Because he can help you to file a claim with heaven to get your payout. But it's an entirely different thing if Jesus is driving. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in control of my life anymore. If Jesus is driving, I don't set the rules or the agenda for my relationships anymore. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. It's actually his wallet. If Jesus is driving, then his mission takes priority over my selfish ambition. He chooses the destination for my life. He chooses the route to get me there, and he chooses the speed at which my life is going to progress toward that end. Now it's his agenda and his plan because this is now his life and it's all for his glory. The central confession of the global and historic church is that Jesus is Lord. And God's people have given personal expression to the lordship of Christ by getting out of the driver's seat and giving him the keys. And in our text for today... Luke shows us some of the dynamics of that lordship. 
we're going to see in this text that Jesus is Lord of Scripture, Jesus is Lord of the Christian, and Jesus is Lord of the church. Those are our three points for this morning. So let's take a look at our first point where we see that Jesus is Lord of Scripture. And I'm drawing this point from verses 22 through 36. Keep your eyes on the text. We opened our series two weeks ago in Acts chapter 1. And what we noted is that at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, the author, wants us to understand that everything that's going to happen in the book of Acts is going to be a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Not only this, but he shows us in chapter 1 that the mission of the church is grounded on the bedrock, the incontrovertible truth of the resurrection. Not a blind faith, not a leap into the dark, the stubborn fact, the empirical eyewitness proof of the resurrection. And he also tells his disciples that he promises that they will receive power to be his witnesses. Last week, we covered Pentecost. And what we saw, based upon the Old Testament allusions that Pentecost references, is that what's happening in Pentecost and in the book of Acts is that the greater Moses, who led his people on a greater exodus out of the grave, Jesus Christ, has ascended to the Father, as Moses ascended Mount Sinai. But instead of sending a law down to govern his people, he sends his spirit down to empower his people to obey the law that was given in the first place. And not only this, Pentecost, if you remember, was a sign uh, of the first fruits where they would come in and do a wave offering that said, this is only the beginning of the greater harvest that is to come. We believe that by faith, a greater harvest is to come. And in our text for today, we see that greater harvest starting to take shape in chapter 2. Now, Peter has already lifted his voice to explain what was happening with the outpouring of the Spirit. But in verse 22, we get the beginning of Peter's sermon to his fellow countrymen, to his fellow Jews. And look carefully at Peter's witness, if you would. Beginning with verse 2, he tells the story of Jesus and he interprets the significance of Jesus with six emphases. Take a look at the text because this gives us guidance as to the nature of our witness. Verse 22, Peter bears witness to the life and ministry of Jesus. In verse 23, he bears witness to the death of Jesus and the, the place of the death of Jesus and God's purposes. Okay, in verses 24 through 32, he bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 33 to 35, he bears witness to the exaltation of Jesus, that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 36, he bears witness to the lordship of Jesus. And in verses 37 to 39, he bears witness to salvation in Jesus. And what we need to appreciate is that each and every one of these six emphases is drawn from Scripture. We should be making a connection here. We should be making a, an important connection here. And this is that connection. One crucial aspect of the power that the Holy Spirit gives to the church 
is the power to see the Christological dynamism of Scripture. The power to see the Christological dynamism of Scripture. Put another way, the power to see the fullness of the person and work of Jesus on every page of Scripture. Peter is not just bearing witness based upon his personal experience with Jesus and his teachings. He now sees Christ as the Lord of Scripture. Christ is the author of Scripture. Christ is the main theme of Scripture. Christ is the fulfillment of Scripture. Christ is the Lord of Scripture. God's story held together in a completely different way in their minds because Christ was risen and the Spirit was poured out. The pages of Scripture now had a different meaning and it carried different nuances because they now realized Christ as the Lord of Scripture. They were now reading Scripture with the full knowledge of where it was all going. The apostles are now coming to the Scriptures with different questions as they read. They're having a richer experience with the Word of God because they were making gospel connections in the Scriptures. They could now appreciate what the Lord was doing and how it was all building to a climax. You see, they had to reinterpret everything now that Christ was risen. And it was this gospel preaching that the Spirit used to bring 3,000 souls into the church on that day. And if you want to be faithful and fruitful on God's mission, then you must get out of the driver's seat of biblical interpretation and give Jesus the keys. Listen, when you're in the driver's seat, Scripture is reduced to great morality that we cannot achieve. When Jesus is in the driver's seat, Scripture reveals a great salvation that Jesus achieved. When we're in the driver's seat, Scripture becomes a heavy burden on our shoulders. But when Jesus is in the driver's seat, Scripture becomes a precious balm to our hearts. When we're in the driver's seat, Scripture is read as good advice on how to have a nice life. But when Jesus is in the driver's seat, Scripture reads as good news of resurrection life. Foundational to the mission of the early church was the understanding that Jesus is Lord of Scripture. But we also see in this text that Jesus is the Lord of the Christian. Which brings us to our second point. Jesus is Lord of the Christian. And I'm pulling this from verses 36 through 41. Okay? Now, after, after Peter preaches Christ as the Lord of Scripture, we're told in verse 37 that they were cut to the heart. This message got beneath the surface and it hit them in the heart. And they asked, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's response shows us what it looks like for the Lord of Scripture to be the Lord of the Christian. And he begins with repentance. Repentance. Somebody say repentance. Repentance does not get nearly as much press as faith, but it's every bit as important because faith and repentance are different sides of the same exact coin. All true faith is repentant faith. And all true repentance is believing repentance. Repentance 
is when you realize that you're driving in the wrong direction. You hit a U-turn. You pull off the side of the road. You get out of the driver's seat, and you give Jesus the keys. It's not enough to let Jesus just pick the radio station while you stay in the driver's seat. You know what that is? That's a nice way of avoiding repentance. That's another way of saying, I like Jesus, but I don't trust him. And I'm definitely not giving him control. Repentance is when you stop playing church and you start to become the church. Repentance is when you shed the layers of religious pretense and pride. It's when you give up on trying to put God into your debt through performance and you live in the grace of the Lord with gratitude and humility. Repentance is when you recognize the sinfulness of your sin and it breaks your heart and you collapse onto the mercy of God, not just for forgiveness, but for transformation. Like the crowd in our text, we are left with a question in light of the proclamation of the lordship of Jesus. What shall we do? What shall you do? What do you do with your sin? Do you conceal it? Do you make light of it? Do you rationalize it? Do you excuse it? The apostle says that Jesus' people repent of it. When you recognize the lordship of Christ, you live a life of repentance. But the next thing that Peter mentions in the text is that he calls these new converts to baptism. This is to say that you receive a new identity in union with Christ and in communion with the church. Jesus tells me who I am. And the church reinforces what Jesus says about me. I am a beloved child of God. I am a new creation fashioned for the glory of God. I am redeemed. I'm an heir of all God's promises. I am a blessed member of his visible body. And notice that Peter tells these brothers to put this sign on their children and to raise them into this same baptismal identity. Because as we say all the time, there is a gospel logic to baptism. The Christian life is not about you showing what you do for God. The Christian life is all about receiving with gratitude what God has done for you. In the same manner, in the same logic, baptism is not about you showing off your faith in Jesus. It's about you embracing the promises. It's God showing off his love for you. And that's why we baptize our children. Because we never want there to be a day that they don't know that they are loved by Jesus. And in a tangible, physical way, baptism is the sign and seal of God's promise of grace. Not just for adults, but for children. A perfect, beautiful picture of the gospel when you are helpless, when you can do nothing for yourself, when you're not reaching for God, he's coming for you. He's thinking of you, and he's setting his love on you. They are told by Peter to raise their children in this way. To live under the lordship of Christ is to faithfully raise your children under this identity so that by grace they might make it their own by faith in the Lord Jesus. But while we're on identity, I want to make an important point that will always and ever be a struggle for churches 
doing mission in the city. And it's this. Everything that we just said about the lordship of Christ and the identity of his people helps to highlight the problem with trying to smuggle in identitarian movements of our day into the Christian faith. Or letting those movements co-opt the Christian faith and rewrite it. These are attempts to gain the salvation and blessing of Christ without submitting to the lordship of Christ. If you are submitting to the lordship of Christ, you can't talk over him and say, but this is who I really am, when he tells you who you are and who he created you to be. This is the clay talking back to the potter. To use the language of the prophet Jeremiah. Who are you, clay, to speak back to the potter? Who knows who you are better than him? The one who made you. The one who knows everything about you, more about you than you know about yourself. He knows the deep recesses of your heart. He knows your trajectory. And that's why these identitarian movements cannot move us off of the lordship of Christ as we think about the Christian life. The last piece we see here is receiving God's promise. What does it look like to live under the lordship of Christ? It starts with the repentance. We then see Peter named baptism. It's about identity. Then he moves to receiving God's promise by faith. This, too, is an expression of Christ's lordship over your life. Because true faith says this. The Lord cannot lie. He is good. Nothing can stop his plans and purposes. He sees what I cannot see. He knows what I do not know. And he doesn't need the help of a backseat driver to make good on his word. Get out of the driver's seat of your life and give Jesus the keys. In this text, Jesus is proclaimed as the Lord of Scripture. He is trusted as the Lord of the Christian. And in this final paragraph of our text, we see what it looks like for Christ to be the Lord of the church. This is our final point. Jesus is Lord of the church. And this is drawn from verses 42 to 47. After these new believers are cut to the heart, when they are converted and they all come together, they are now thinking, we're now the cross and resurrection people. We are the repent and be forgiven people. We are the new creation community. And this new communal identity results in new communal activity. Do you see that? And that new communal activity gives expression to the lordship of Christ. Look at verse 42, if you would. It says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they devoted themselves. Proskartoruntes is the Greek word. And if you go to the Greek dictionary, the Greek lexicon, and you try to get an understanding of how this word is used, this is uh, the, the nuance, the flavoring, the lexical shading of that word. They devoted themselves. This is what the primary Greek dictionary says. This is what devoted means. To apply oneself exclusively to a certain thing. To commit oneself to something tirelessly. To persist in something. To be busily engaged in something. This is what 
a communal response to the lordship of Christ looks like. Now, I want to frame it by contrast. The first thing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching over the spirit of the age. They had a shared theological framework and shared ethical commitments that kept them from being blown back and forth by the winds of popular, politically useful ideas in the culture. The loyalties of these believers were simply not up for sale. No amount of power, no amount of influence opportunity caused them to forsake the lordship of Christ. No promise of worldly comfort or power deterred them. No threats of the Roman Empire or any other power could punk them or back them down. Nothing could make them unsee what they had seen when he rose from the grave and appeared to them and called them and commissioned them for his mission. Nothing could make them unsee that. Nothing could push them off of their firm foundation. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And if we would have a similar impact in our mission, we must do the same. Not trying to revise the apostles' teaching. Not trying to edit the apostles' teaching. Remember, they were taught directly by the Lord Jesus himself. And another caution I just want to lay out there when it relates to the apostles' teaching is the apostles' teaching is not in conflict with the teaching of Jesus. And many people need to move on from pop Jesus to the actual Jesus of Scripture so that they are rooted in what he actually said and what he actually taught. Because if you start to say things like, my Jesus isn't judgmental, I'm going to take you back to the Scriptures and show you that one of the most frequent teachings of Jesus is about hell. Ooh. And about the rich and money and how it's difficult for them to enter the kingdom. That don't sound like warm and fuzzy Jesus. We got to get the Jesus of popular imagination out of our heads and embrace the Jesus of Scripture who instructed his apostles and by his spirit gave them the foundational doctrines and teachings that they were called to. And you can't just say, well, I'm just going to focus on loving Jesus. Because at that point, we have to do theology and say, which Jesus? What is that Jesus like? Is he fully God and fully man? One person, two natures? Is he a hypostatic union? Is this Jesus sinless? Was he really born of a virgin? You can't not do theology. You can't not do doctrine. You know you ought to chill out with the doctrine. That's a doctrine. So don't try to play us like you on some higher plane. All of us have doctrinal commitments. The question is, is your foundation sure? I would submit to you that the Christian foundation is the foundation that will last unto eternity. Because it's built on the foundation of Jesus risen from the dead. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Next, they devoted themselves to the fellowship over individualism. So much of what, pay attention to this, so much of what they do here is not individually better for them. <laughs> they had all things in common. That's not great for those who have a lot of stuff compared to people who don't. But they weren't concerned about what was individually better. They were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to those in need. And just to be clear, they did this willingly. 
they are making moves based upon communal priorities, and their individual priorities begin to harmonize with their communal priorities. Their primary concern, listen to me, y'all, I know you, and I love you, and you need this word. Their primary concern was not their own hopes and dreams and aspirations and desires. Their primary concern was glorifying God by seeking the flourishing of their community and their mission. That was primary. And what was the emotional impact? Look at the text. Glad and generous hearts. Praising God. Do you see? The result was communal joy. We get no hint of felt loss or sadness resulting from these shared communal practices. Next, they devoted themselves to hospitality over tribalism. One of the clearest proofs that our society is radically broken, one of the clearest proofs is our tables. It's our tables. Robert D. Putnam, in his book entitled Bowling Alone, the Collapse and Revival of American Community, says the following, quote, people divorced from community, occupation, and association are first and foremost among the supporters of extremism. Does that explain a lot about what's going on right now in our country? The extremism of our day is a result of people being disconnected from community in a meaningful way, among other things. But just as we see the brokenness of our society at our tables, we also see the vitality of the early Christian community at their tables. For the early church, their tables became outposts of an embodied gospel, sites of welcome, reunion, love, and inclusion. And we need to remember that many people will begin their journey to the Lord's table at our tables if we're faithful. If we're faithful, this community received the welcome of God at his table, and they were delighted to extend the welcome of God at their tables. They devoted themselves to hospitality over tribalism. They devoted themselves to the prayers over self-reliance. This was a community that demonstrated a deep dependence on the Lord and a deep dependence on one another. And this reality came through most powerfully in their devotion to corporate prayer. They were committed to bringing their needs to the community. The community was devoted to interceding for their beloved friends, and everyone was devoted to giving and receiving that, that support. It never crossed their minds that they were going to be a bother to someone by sharing their burden and their need for prayer. They, that would have been unthinkable to them. They knew that their greatest resource was only a word away. The resulting communal life of the early church was one of mutual love, friendship, celebration, and an environment of care. And you might sum it up by saying that the early church was devoted to togetherness in everything. And a beautiful thing that develops through the rest of the book of Acts is that the communal devotion of these Jewish believers, listen to me, this is important. The communal devotion of these Jewish believers is going to make them teachable, repentant, and welcoming when it comes to opening up their community to the Gentiles. That is amazing. They're, they're going to follow Jesus. These Jewish believers are going to follow Jesus in such a beautiful way 
that there's going to be the ability for the Gentiles to be grafted in. That is incredible because everything that's happening right now, even though you have people from all different cultures, they're still Jews of the diaspora. And what God is doing in their midst for the Jew first, Romans 1, is going to bubble over and overflow to the whole world. Because of their devotion, they had a place for the excluded, and their mission profoundly flourished. They didn't have any church growth seminars, no gimmicks, no tricks or attractional antics that were going to draw people. There was just something beautiful and compelling about the way that this new community lived life together, committed to one another, loved one another, shared with one another, and flourished together. The Spirit worked in and through the church in a most profound way because their community matched their gospel. Their community matched their gospel. The gospel announced that the far off were brought near, and they were a church that brought the far off near. The gospel announced repentance and forgiveness of sins, and they were a community that did the the life of repentance and forgiveness of sins. The gospel proclaimed resurrection life, and theirs was a church that walked in resurrection life together. The gospel proclaimed Jesus as Lord, and theirs was a church under the lordship of Christ. They were fruitful on mission because their community matched their gospel. And we must always be asking ourselves, does our community match our gospel? Do we see the contours of the gospel developing and unfolding in the life of our community? I think I see it. I want more. And I want you to want more. And together, I want us to be more and more fruitful on the mission as we live under the lordship of Christ. They were fruitful on mission because their community matched their gospel. And if these first century Christians could stop by today and give us a message, I think they would say, get out of the driver's seat and give Jesus the keys. He knows how to navigate from the highway of hardship to the parkway of peace. He can get you from the freeway of fear onto boldness boulevard. He can get you from the beltway of brokenness onto the roadway of redemption. If you just get out of the driver's seat and give him the keys. I'm praying and I want to invite you to pray with me that the Lord would bless our mission as we give expression to the lordship of Christ in our life together. Lord, make it so. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.